coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy Thursday to you. Thanks for listening to The Ron Show, whether you're doing so on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or if you're just listening to us via podcast, wherever you do so, thank you for making The Ron Show a part of your day. Uh, later in the show, my good friend, noted historian, author, professor of sociology at Coker University, Mal Hyman, joins us second half of the show to talk about Henry Kissinger, who passed away at the age of 100. And it's, you know, not, not the tap dance on the tombstone here, but there are a lot of folks who look back at history and realize Henry Kissinger has a bit of a mixed legacy, depending not just ideologically, but yeah. We'll talk about Henry Kissinger and his passing. It's just interesting that we're pivoting from the passing of former First Lady Rosalind Carter. By the way, a beautiful tribute to her and former President Jimmy Carter at Freedom Park, using nothing more than stones and mulch to portray this image of the two of them in their younger years as a loving married couple. Freedom Park uh, near... Ponce Highland and Old Fourth Ward, Inman Park, Little Five Points in Atlanta. Just beautiful. Uh, I'll try and share that with you. In fact, there's a cool little Instagram post that I can share uh, on the uh, Ron Show Facebook page. If you'll just follow us at Ron Show ATL there. Uh, I think I can do that on Twitter as well. X, whatever you want to call it. So um, anyway, pivoting from former First Lady Rosalind Carter's passing and the sort of impact that she and her husband have had on... Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions when you account for spreading democracy around the world and protecting democracy around the world. And then you've got Henry Kissinger. Uh, Anyway, Professor Hyman and I will discuss his, air quotes, legacy in the second half of the show. Here at home, though, we have some uh, more pressing issues to discuss. There will not be an extension of Governor Kemp's gas tax. So we expect to see gas prices going up in Georgia. Although, I was watching this uh, NBC News piece yesterday. Just and, and It is one of those moments where I'm the boomer. I'm not a boomer. Uh, where I, I felt like the boomer yelling back at the television. Oh, yeah, well, literally, there was a story uh, on NBC News that talked about the drop in gas prices. And, yeah, you know, I, I hope those Biden stickers are still on some of the pumps, right, as the prices keep going down. Uh, below $3 a gallon in, I want to say, more than a dozen, was it 14 states uh, across the country? Georgia being among them, we are 46 cents below the national average, although we're about to see that number dwindle a bit. Our our gas prices will go up now that the Governor Kemp gas tax will no longer be in effect. Interesting to note as well that inflation on the whole has cooled quite a bit. We saw some inflationary numbers come out and a GDP growth that exceeded expectations for the third quarter, the economic indicators are all lining up to give an incumbency an advantage in about 11 months. But we'll, we'll see about that, won't we? Speaking of 2024, the presidential campaign and healthcare costs, the Biden campaign unleashing uh, a new TV campaign that you'll see on a few shows. If you watch like Survivor or Bachelor in Paradise, who watches that? The Voice. Uh, you'll see it on cable news programs as well. This is entitled Your Family. My name's Jody. I've been a pediatric nurse for 18 years. I love what I do, but we definitely need more support. 
The last administration's policies were so troubling and our healthcare system has become a business and people are becoming billionaires off the backs of sick people. I've seen the heartbreak when parents are trying to figure out how they're going to pay for a medicine to keep their kid healthy. But we are seeing lots of positive changes. And thanks to President Biden and Vice President Harris, families can afford medication now. The Biden administration lowered the cost of prescription drugs and passed laws to make healthcare more affordable. The idea that we could go back to the policies that help the rich get richer and left so many people behind. I don't want to go back. I can't go back. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. So, good message. I also think for the next 11 months, I talk to friends about this all the time. They, they come to me when uh, there's something political to discuss, or if I'm just hanging out with people and there's a political conversation that sprouts up, uh, we talk about the Biden malaise, the lack of enthusiasm. In fact, who was I talking to today about this? Oh, I, my, my financial advisor, Brian and I, we were talking about you know how folks want to fall in love. They want to become fanatics or fans of the next political icon. And Joe Biden isn't an icon. He's just not. Nobody's excited about it. I get it. I'm not either. Uh, but I'm also a grown-up. I'm a grown-up who realizes, you know, in in like, say, a marriage, for example, and who am I to talk? I'm divorced. But I remember what it's like to be infatuated with someone and, oh, the things you would do because you were so infatuated, infatuated with someone. You would show so much uh, energy and intensity and emotion, be so outwardly emotional and constantly on social media talking about, you know, about that guy or that girl and how much you love them and would run through walls for them, blah, 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 blah. And then you get married and you're like, can we, can we just agree on what the thermostat needs to be set at? Do you mind putting your shoes away? Can you put your socks in the hamper? The things that, you know, annoy you about the person that you're adjoined to the hip at, but you still love them. You just aren't as expressive or fawning. Americans want to be in love with a candidate. And unfortunately, we're heading towards uh, a rematch of two candidates that America's just not in love with. But at the end of the day, sometimes you you find yourself thinking, okay, I have if you're on a if you're like on a dating show and you're down to two, you're down to those two. Do you go with the reliable, steady, rational, sane, or do you go with Hey, this this one right here might absolutely light up my life for six weeks or a tax cut or something like that, but there also comes a lot of baggage. What are you going to go with? That's really kind of what it comes down to. Again, may not stir the juices, may not put the butterflies in the stomach, but you you know reliably the steady hand that you have waiting for you versus... Being reminded, and this is what I think the Biden campaign has to do in the next 11 months, remind the American voters what life was like prior to January 20th, 2021. It's easy to forget how crazy 2017 through 2020 was. But y'all, those were crazy times. We're three years removed from that, but it was nuts. We were putting bleach in places and looking for UV rays by 
I don't know, standing on our head, naked. I don't, I mean, it was crazy pants, right? It was just insanity. That's what the Biden campaign has. And I, I think that campaign ad is kind of more subtle than I would have liked. But then again, it's we're 11 months out. So maybe the game plan is to just subtly start reminding voters what life was like three years ago and the four years before. Incidentally, and kind of bringing this back to the gas tax savings, uh, Governor Brian Kemp has loved harping on Bidenomics and inflation as if the current president had much of a mark on the rise of inflation that American consumers have had to deal with when globally it's much worse than most of the world that you even bother to look at economic indicators for. And we're actually faring much better now as well. But uh, Americans, we, I'm one of us, we, we tend to be self-absorbed. Oh my gosh, this is so miserable. It's hard for us. It's harder elsewhere, y'all. It's worse elsewhere. We're faring a lot better. And we, I'm not saying we have to be thankful that it's not worse. It, it, it's like saying, oh, you're only suffering some third degree burns. Or is everybody else's dust and ash? No, those are still three de- third-degree burns. They still suck, but it literally could have been a lot worse. Okay, going back to the gas scenario. Even that, I've said this for quite a while now. We dealt with a two-year plan, a deal that was put in place in April of 2020 but that the Trump administration orchestrated with OPEC to stifle oil production for two solid years. Because remember, for a while, we were all sheltering in place and social distancing, staying home, Zooming to work and this, that, and the other. So we weren't using gas nearly as much. And the market was just awash with oil sitting in barrels being unused. And oil companies were going to go under without some sort of assistance. So some of the assistance came by way of suppressing production. And so OPEC, making a deal with the Trump administration, suppressed their oil production for two solid years. Why they chose two years, I don't know. Why they didn't say, let's do this for six months and review it. No, for two solid years, there was a suppression of oil production amongst OPEC nations. And that meant we had limited supply when demand came back closer to normal which spiked gas prices. That literally went until April, uh, the end of April, I believe, of 2022. Who was president then? Exactly. For more than a year and three months, the president of the United States at that point in time was responsible for the spike in gas prices, despite the fact that he didn't set the agreement in place. Much like the Afghanistan calamity, an agreement that he didn't sign, didn't set into, didn't negotiate, didn't release the 5,000 Talibani troops that blew up in our faces uh, when they overtook the Afghan government that we spent nearly two decades trying to prop up. It wasn't a, a, a Biden agreement. I mean, sure, the exit didn't look all that great, but the, the setup was piss poor too. Now, let me just say this. As good as I see and most of economists you ask right now see good economic indicators there's always there's always that there's always that undertone of yeah but dot 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 yeah i mean 
things can always go south. And in the next 11 months, we have no idea what's going to happen. However, it's, it appears that that, aka soft landing or recession, well, I would say that maybe we've already experienced a soft landing and we're just unaware of it. But that recession just does not seem to be rearing its head, although Republicans have been talking about it since Biden put his hand on the Bible and started swearing, right? Um, there is, I believe, some troubling things coming to pass that we may see come out of courtrooms to alter the economic landscape. And it has absolutely nothing to do with Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Brian Kemp, the Senate, how, nothing to do with any politician. Uh, but I'm keenly aware of it because, as I've mentioned a time or two before, I am a realtor, residential real estate agent, and this is very concerning stuff. I will explain what that is when you return on The Ron Show. Thank you for listening, by the way, on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Thursday. Uh, yesterday, I got a good bit of audio from Senate, Chamber, and Subcommittee hearings on the reapportionment, redistricting, redraw mandated at a federal court level. Today, I thought I'd give you a little bit of audio from the House subcommittee hearing. Uh, House Minority Leader James Beverly, uh, first to speak on that from the Democratic point of view. Um, today is a, is a solemn day in the state of Georgia. And it's solemn because a couple years ago, uh, when we had an opportunity to choose to draw a map that was reflective of Georgia, uh, this House failed to do that. Georgia has changed over the last uh, 10 years, and it's still changing. A million people moved into Georgia from, a million plus people moved into Georgia uh, over the last census. Over 95% of those folk were people of color. And as we think about the ever-changing landscape of Georgia, we realize that uh, the state has changed and it's making us better. The reality is, is that the map that was drawn a couple years ago does not reflect that change. And so the judge and the judge's wisdom decided to say to us, we're gonna give you another shot at it, another chance, make it right. And the judge's uh, wisdom, the judge was very clear. You have five seats that black folk in the state of Georgia should be able to choose a representative of their choice, five, because the judge in his order believed that that was just and equal. And so we find ourselves here today uh, to, to carry out that order. Uh, as many as you know, we uh, are a deliberative body, and so, and I know that reasonable minds, as all the attorneys will say, and I'm not an attorney, praise the Lord. It's a source we, of great pride and comfort to your mother, I'm fine. sure. Y'all have your place. Uh, but I'm, but I'm, I'm deeply grateful that we have a deliberative body and that reasonable minds can disagree. Uh, but this is not a situation where reasonable minds can disagree. The judge has an order. And we need to fulfill that order because in trying to save one, you're going to put the jeopardy of the whole house, you're going to put the whole house in jeopardy, and we're going to have to make those decisions. So 
What we did as a Georgia House Democratic Caucus collectively is came up with a map that we believe that we're sure does not violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. It does not. And we think that the map that the Republicans, uh, all due respect, uh, presented will violate at least a couple of sections, at least two places of the Voting Rights Act, which will then put us in jeopardy. The whole house in jeopardy uh, that a special master may have to draw our map. And so as we go through this process, I'm going to have Brian Sells, who is our attorney, uh, to uh, and our demographer to talk about our map, how it complies with the judge's order, how it doesn't violate Section 2. And then we're going to talk about the Republican map and how it does. And then I hope we have public commentary. And I know we will. So I'm not going to bore you with the back and forth on that, but I will share the YouTube link in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Uh, Brian Sells made one fantastic point that I think is worth repeating. In, in case it isn't obvious, uh, l- let me say that I think it's important for everyone in this room, everyone in this body, that what comes out of this uh, session is a map that complies with the Voting Rights Act so that Judge Jones isn't tasked with drawing it. Because if he is, he's not going to take into account things like incumbency and political considerations. That's not for a federal judge to do. That's for this body to do. And, and so it's, it's a bit of a, a sword of Damocles hanging over everyone's head. One can only hope that House and Senate Republicans here in Atlanta not only heed that warning, but also pay attention to what happened in Alabama and just do the right thing. Republicans are trying to do this semantics thing. Well, we did do the five majority black districts in Metro Atlanta. Yeah, but you're 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 diluting black voting power in other districts to make it happen and protecting incumbency. And so again, it's a valid argument that Brian Sells made. All right, so I said before we went into the last break, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, a looming economic situation that could be rearing its head, and it has everything to do with real estate. I am a realtor, residential realtor. RonOnTheReal.com, by the way. And I see a problem looming, one that could have huge effects on the overall economy. So you're asking, what is that problem? Uh, Michael Cannell at the AJC touched on this today. I'll share in today's show notes at RonShowETL.com. A class action lawsuit filed in Georgia federal court that's modeled on the one that resulted in a huge judgment against brokers in Missouri threatens to shake up the local housing market, mainly by revamping the way that real estate agents or home buyers are paid. In the Georgia suit, plaintiffs argue that realtors, groups, and brokers have forced excessive costs, their words, and, quote, inflated commissions on home sellers in an alleged scheme that is, quote, artificially and anti-competitively maintained. They asked the court to declare current real estate practices illegal, violating federal and state law, and award them damages. While not specifying a figure, the suit says plaintiffs has have lost, quote, millions of dollars in overcharges and damages. Skimming down to the article a little bit, officials at the National Association of Realtors, of which I am a member in full transparency, of which represent 1.5 million agents who have a special certification and a code of ethics, have said they will appeal the Missouri decision. But with Georgia just one of the states in which, quote, copycat suits have been filed, the issue seems destined to have national repercussions. One more line that sort of caught my attention in this article. The Georgia suit calls the commission's, quote, overcharges and says there is, quote, no correlation to the volume or caliber of services provided, 
by the buyer brokers who receive the commissions. I disagree. I'm going to explain to you in great detail why this lawsuit cannot just be calamitous for agents, buyer agents, listing sales agents, but also for the home seller, could also price home buyers out of the market and create a huge spiral swirling down the drain for the housing market, which is so integral to the overall American economy. This has disaster written all over it. I'm not even sure I know what the solution is. I, again, am a realtor. I'm not exactly fond of the status quo myself, but their solution is not the solution. In fact, it is flirtation with a deep recession, if not an overall economic depression. So I'll spell it out in greater detail when we come back here. Also, Professor Mal Hyman, Coker University, joins me to discuss the legacy of Henry Kissinger when the Ron Show returns on America One Radio, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Call or text the Ron Show anytime at 404-919-2725. The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, so you heard me before going into the break, and if you didn't, then you'll just catch up real quick because I'm going to summarize what I was talking about. So going into the break, we were talking about a looming lawsuit here in the state of Georgia, a class action lawsuit where home sellers, past home sellers, are claiming that uh, real estate agent commissions have been overblown, that they are overcharges, and that they don't see a correlation between the amount paid to the agent that sold their home with the services rendered. The Georgia suit, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, calls the commission's, quote, overcharges and says there's, quote, no correlation to the volume or caliber of services provided by the buyer brokers who receive the commissions. They're looking to blow up the commission structure in the residential real estate industry altogether. And listen, I, again, I'm a realtor. I live and I die by commission, just like every other realtor does. There are very few brokerages or agencies where you work making a flat salary irregardless of volume sold because that's just the way the American residential real estate industry has functioned for, I have no idea, for, for decades, if not longer. We are not employees of our brokerage. By the way, I work for eXp Realty. When I say for, I work with eXp Realty, honestly. I pay into eXp for the use of marketing tools and logos and signage and website and uh, mentorship and being able to talk to a broker at any point in time when I have questions about my business, but I'm not an employee of eXp Realty. See, that's an expense that I partake in. Whether I do or don't sell a house, it's a monthly expense. I have other expenses. Those signs that I mentioned, the uh, little lock boxes that we use on the doors so that not everyone can just walk into a vacant house that you're trying to sell, but a real estate agent who has taken an oath to protect that home can access with their buyer when they go to show your home. So here's how the commission structure works. Say you're going to sell a house. Real estate agent that you have decided to list with is having a listing appointment with you and explains to you, by the way, uh, the standard commission to sell your house is 6%. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's a big chunk of money. Okay, yes it is. But if you're thinking that only one person gets it, well, that's not true. 
So the agent for the buyer, whoever the buyer winds up being, they, in general, have an agent. They come into the party, and you're paying your broker 6% to help them sell the house. Hear what I said again. You're paying that listing agent 6% to help them sell the house. It's not just to pay them for selling the house. No, that chunk of money is going to help them sell the house as well. Because that agent has to hire a photographer. Sometimes there's drone footage. Videographer sometimes, if they don't have those capabilities. And by the way, I have all those capabilities. Uh, They have to have access to the multiple listing services that you don't have. I mean, that, that alone is hundreds of dollars per transaction. Your real estate agent has to spend hours putting that home on the market, choosing the right photos, working with the photographer. They have to coordinate with the agent for the buyer. Here we go again. The buyer working with your agent, buyer agent working with your agent to facilitate the inspection. They go over the inspection with their client on the buyer side. And then they come back to you with a list of concerns that they want addressed. And there's negotiation and there's the appraisal. And then there may be negotiation because the appraisal doesn't meet the sales price. There's a lot that goes into this and there is collaboration with the buyer's agent. There just is. I know you think maybe, well, wait a minute. If this were a court case, why would I be paying the plaintiff's legal fees if I'm the defendant or vice versa? Well, the difference here is when you go to court, you're not looking to come away making all sides happy as possible. In a home sale, you're in general trying to facilitate the purchase of a home, which makes the buyer happy, and the sale of the home, which makes the seller happy. And there has to be collaboration and coordination. If, for example, this lawsuit, as the one in Missouri did, and the National Association of Realtors, of which I am a member, full transparency, succeeds, then you may see a situation where home sellers will only have to pay a 3% commission or a 25 or whatever you, whatever it is you negotiate with your listing agent. The problem is, who's going to pay the, the buyer's agent? The buyer's? Well, you just eliminated most in America, most first-time home buyers because they have to have 3% or 3.5% unless they're veterans, in which they don't have to have a down payment, but they in general have to have 3% or 3.5% down payment to purchase the home. And then there are going to be uh, various closing costs that sometimes come to 2 to 3% of the purchase of the home as well. And sometimes the sellers pay some of those, and sometimes, depending on the market, they don't. Do you see how those costs start adding up for the buyer? You've just priced, at another 3% of that, and you've just priced most first-time home buyers out of the market. And what does that do to the housing market? It creates a slump. What does a housing market slump do? It creates a recession or a depression. It also lessens the value of the home you're selling. And you're thinking, well, how, it doesn't affect the value of the home. Yes, it does. Because in a simple supply-demand scenario, if there is less demand, the supply is not worth as much. You have fewer folks coming in trying to buy your home. There aren't bidding wars. And if there aren't bidding wars or if there's not intense interest in your home, well, you're going to get the offer you get, but there's not going to be competition driving that offer up. So you actually still lose money as a home seller. You think, oh, I'm going to save that 3% because of this lawsuit. 
actually, you may come away with less than that after the fact. And in the process, you've created this calamitous scenario where you've created a housing slump, which created a recession and or depression. And then where are we? This has disaster written all over. And listen, I'm personally, it, it took me a few years to get past the idea of getting a check on the first and 15th, knowing what it was. And, and oh, by the way, we don't get benefits either. Like we pay out of pocket for that. Our own health insurance, we have to pay for that. I don't know what you're thinking. Well, why, why do I have to pay for that? Mm, I don't know. Why do you have to tip your server when you go to a restaurant? You do because standard practice in this country dictates that you tip your server 20, 25%, hopefully, and the restaurateur gets off with without. It's just the way the system is set up. And unless there's this wholesale implosion of the way the American residential real estate industry works, them's the brakes. That's just how it operates. You may see a lot of real estate agents get out of the business altogether. And listen, there's like 45, 50,000 of them in Metro Atlanta. So we could probably stand to shave a few off the top. That being said, if you don't have a compensated advocate on both sides of the transaction, somebody's going to get screwed. And in this case, the aim, it seems, is to screw over the buyer agent. I can tell you, I work both sides of these transactions all the time. And I work just as hard on both sides of the transaction. So here's the reality. If the folks in this class action lawsuit are claiming that their agent didn't tell them that the 6% that they were paying to sell the home was going to be used to compensate the buyer's agent as well. They're, they're either lying or they were misserved by their agent. Because every time I go into a listing appointment, I explain what the commission structure is and why it is what it is and what I need to do with that money to help them sell their house. And I've never once had somebody go, well, that's not going to work. And understand, I'm a solutions guy. Like if somebody tells me that, okay, well, we'll figure out a way to make this work. And there are ways that we can make this work. If you'd like to pay only half that commission, that's fine. Then we need to work together to find a buyer that isn't represented. Boom, we can do that. Say that's a friend or family member, but aren't they going to want to have someone advocating for them as well? Well, sure. And I can sometimes bring in an agent from within my brokerage, a friend or a colleague, and they can work with us and we'll you know, do it for a, a, a little bit less or a lot less and make it transactional. That can save you money. But y'all, the, the stack of paperwork and documents you have to sign and things you have to go through and double check and do your due diligence on, it's immersive. And I can assure you, you can either do with what it costs real estate agents on both sides of the transaction, or you can drag attorneys into this if you'd like to. And actually, we work with title closing attorneys firms at the end of the day, and that's another expense. But I'm telling you, real estate agents are going to cost you a lot less than attorneys do. I'm just finding a good bit of disingenuity from, the, is that a word? From this lawsuit, this class action lawsuit. Oh, well, we didn't know that that's what they were doing, that they were sharing that proceeds of that commission with the, the the buyer's agent. Yes, you did. If your realtor or real estate agent didn't tell you that, then they violated their code of ethics. And then there's a real problem. Then you've got a problem. I mean, then you've got a problem. Then you've got a lawsuit on your hands. But by and large, the overwhelming majority of real estate agents who are going to help you sell your home, your townhome, your condo, your property, they're telling you up front, well, here's the commission structure and this is what I do with it. And if they don't, you need to find another agent. And this is where I remind you again, by the way, I am a residential real estate agent, a realtor here in Metro Atlanta, 
RonOnTheReal.com. Ron at RonOnTheReal.com. At RonOnTheReal on all the social platforms. All right, I ran a little long. Unfortunately, that means cut into uh, Professor Mal Hyman's time, but he joins me next to talk about the legacy, so to speak, of Henry Kissinger, who passed away last night at the age of 100. Professor Hyman is a historian, an author, and of course, a professor of sociology at Coker University. We will have him next when the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show for Thursday, and we just got word here a few minutes ago, by the way, that both the Georgia House and Senate maps that the Republicans threw out on Monday that most folks not in their party think is just going to wind up having us have a judge's special master draw other maps. Well, that's the one they passed. Those are the two that they passed. And so here we are with a map that most of us don't think actually meet the uh, Voting Rights uh, Act threshold, but I guess we'll find out when that goes back to the judge's hands. Joining me is author, historian, and sociology professor at Cook University, my good friend, Mal Hyman. Mal, how are you? I'm well. Great to join you. Thanks. I appreciate that. I figured I wanted to spend a few minutes today talking about the legacy of sorts of the uh, recently departed Henry Kissinger. Of course, uh, Kissinger was a uh, national security advisor and uh, secretary of state in the Nixon and Gerald Ford administrations. Uh, a, a lot of folks remember him for uh, Paris Peace Accords, ending the Vietnam War, uh, his role in uh, shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East and ending the Yom Kippur War. But yeah, his legacy is kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? It is. A polarizing figure who won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for his efforts ending the war in Vietnam, um, but also considered a war criminal by many mm. Uh, for his actions in many places, from the bombing of Cambodia and Laos, leading to reaction with the Khmer Rouge, extended bombing in Vietnam for years, essentially supporting the dirty war in Argentina, Mm -hmm. where tens of thousands of people were killed, the overthrow of democratically elected Democratic Socialist Salvador Allende in Chile, Mm -hmm. uh, supporting the military there, leading to bloody repression for over a decade. He was involved in in that. He was involved in supporting uh, the Shah of Iran during periods of great repression that ultimately led to a reaction where Muslim fundamentalists led by Ayatollah Khomeini Mm. Uh, took over in 1979, uh, and that theocratic regime is is still in power. Uh, His support of the Indonesian government to repress the independence movement in East Timor, uh, his support of Israel uh, expanding settlements in the West Bank Mm. without uh, criticizing, uh, even though he did help broker uh, the Yom Kippur War, uh, he wasn't able to maintain that peace, which really was just a ceasefire in an ongoing war in the region. I do think he deserves credit for the overtures to China mm-hmm. to open up uh, trade and diplomatic relations with with China. I think that was a move that was ahead of where the military and the National Security Council 
were at at the time. And he was even spied on by the Defense Department and the National Security Agency, who feared his independence in diplomacy. So it's a, a very mixed record, a polarizing figure, to say the least, and will be sorting out his legacy for, for quite a while. Not only uh, sorting out his legacy, but kind of working our way around some issues that decisions that he played vital roles in create for us now. You you mentioned the occupation in the West Bank, uh, is Israeli-Palestinian uh, relation. You mentioned the uh, incursions, the involvement in Latin America. I try and remind folks about this all the time. You know, we, we keep dealing with the, or trying to deal with the repercussions of Latin American policy, foreign policy by the United States for decades that keeps washing up on our southern border. We don't want to face the fact that we played a role in the destabilization of Central and South America and many pockets of that continent and, and portion of North America. And instead of taking some responsibility and realizing that we played a role in this destabilization, there is a movement on the right to just pretend that that history doesn't exist and get these icky people out of here. Yeah, so true. At times, we are the United States of amnesia. <laughs> and particularly, uh, our Republican friends mm. have uh, omitted that portion of the story, which is bloody and depressing. Mm. Uh, the human rights work I did in Central and South America, it's crystal clear for anybody that goes down there and talks to teachers or professors or community leaders, U.S. involvement there from Kissinger, essentially a very close ally of Nelson Rockefeller and Chase Manhattan Bank and oil interests, mm. Standard Oil, mm. benefited uh, elites in the United States for years, even if Democratic governments were elected, like in uh, Nicaragua, uh, after an election in 1984, because there was a revolution in 79, but right. an election in 84. And it's, it's interesting to note, just by way of case study, the 25 countries sent observers into Nicaragua, 24 of those countries said the election was free and fair. Mm. It's only the United States that said it wasn't. We continued to overthrow a democratically elected government there. And if you turn the clock back in 53, that's what we did uh, in, Iran in Iran to a democratically elected leader. So Kissinger was an insider, counsel on foreign relations, worked really with both administrations. Uh, maybe was a legend in his own mind, but very influential uh, on foreign policy for years. And it's also fair to note that he supported the invasion of Iraq in, in 2003. Mm. And there were people from the Kissinger and Associates firm that were working at the highest level in trying to consolidate uh, our overthrow of Iraq in 2003 and made an abysmal mess of it even after the invasion. So Kissinger's had his hand at the highest levels of U.S. foreign policy for years, and to circle back to Central and South America, a lot of times we'd be able to prevail by putting money into a political party or pushing out a certain leader. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of times it would create economic destabilization yep. and people would leave for opportunity. And for all of our problems, people want into the United States and it has created more pressure on our border. 
I'm reminded of the meme of the the kid riding the bike and leaning over with a stick to put between the spokes while he's still riding the bike and he winds up falling over. We're, we're oftentimes we're that kid on the bike and we're cussing somebody else out because we fell. Yeah, uh, we we don't look uh, at our past and how that has impacted the present. The Middle East is classic case in point mm. with Iran and. And with uh, what we've done uh, with Iraq and Mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein was on the CIA payroll. He was our guy until he threatened Saudi Arabia. And then uh, we had to to move to get rid of him. And in the process, we were not not only um, uh, inept about it. um, It was predictable that the uh, highest percentage of people in Iraq were Shiite and they would probably align with Shiites in Iran. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, th- these these policies have been ill-considered for years, uh, short-term to bomb Cambodia and Laos and create a Khmer Rouge as a reaction to it, um, overplaying our hand uh, in Europe until finally uh, a Putin realized he didn't have any partners. He couldn't join the European Union. He couldn't join NATO. Uh, the U.S. would push in a Maidan revolution to change power in Ukraine. None of this justifies what Putin did, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a policy that, you know, succeeded in the short run and didn't in the long run. And it's a bit like our environmental policies, you know, concerning ourselves with access to oil and natural gas and not thinking about what's going to happen to the environment in the next generations. I don't want to put it all on one human being. I mean, Henry Kissinger was just one man after all. But but again, this this all seems to bow tie with his tenure in American politics. Uh, it was certainly uh, an expansion and a strengthening of empire. And you could say that strategic trade with China mm. allowed us to have leverage over then the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, and also in uh, Southwest Asia. So uh, I, I think it, it's fair to take a very critical perspective of Kissinger, but also recognize he was really the diplomat that was doing the bidding mm-hmm. of a Chase Manhattan Bank right. and the Rockefellers and the Council on yeah. Foreign Relations. You just don't see this from prior GOP presidencies. Dwight David Eisenhower was... As, as atypical from from this mindset uh, in the Nixon administration as you can find in modern history. Yeah, I think uh, Eisenhower would be a strong supporter of Biden at this point. Mm. Was far more cautious, and the, some of the mistakes that Eisenhower made were because he lacked some foreign policy experience right. and gave too much power to the Dulles brothers. Mm-hmm. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA. And at the time where Eisenhower gives the farewell address and talks about the military industrial complex that will threaten our liberties and and spend money that could be spent on the poor, he also makes a statement that regarding the CIA, he was left, his words, a legacy of ashes, that he couldn't control them. He knew it was an agency out of control. I think Eisenhower would have dealt with things in a far more pragmatic fashion. 
had the opportunity to absolutely well listen i could sit here and talk to you about this for another half an hour unfortunately i'm uh time constrained but i do appreciate you giving me the time great talking to you my good friend professor mal hyman professor of sociology at coker university in south carolina author and historian as well joining us today on the ron show back tomorrow 5 to 6 p.m on the america one radio app americanradio.com or wherever you podcast show notes and more we have them all at ronshowatl.com see you tomorrow have a great one